It's midnight, the podcasting hour. PJ Frightful here. I hope you're enjoying this holiday weekend. More than I am, anyway. Easter has never been a favored holiday for me. It's not jealousy, I assure you. It's just that, why does Jesus get a special day for his resurrection? I mean, it's not like he's the only guy who ever came back from the dead, am I right? Anyway, tonight's episode is special because, for the first time on this podcast... The prologue story is not one told by yours truly. Several listeners have asked if they can submit original stories for this podcast, and I welcome them because it makes my job easier. And kicking off this new tradition is an award-winning story written by our good friend, Dr. Ange. You can find Ange on Twitter with the handle at DrAnge70 or at the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary. I have asked Ryan Daly to read the story so that I can save my voice. Enjoy as much as you can with him, likely butchering Ange's wonderful, wonderful words. It is our way. The clover was blooming, the sun was shining, and the rabbits were nibbling their way through a peaceful lunch when the cloud began to form. The white fluffy wisps seemed to come from all directions, forming an enormous ring directly over the warren, an ill omen for the rabbits who knew what it meant. "'The cloud is forming,' Rhubarb, the chief rabbit, said to the bunnies nearby. "'As before, as ordained, we must call for the colony.' There was fear in the rabbits' eyes as they heard Rhubarb's words. They had hoped they would not experience the cloud, but Rhubarb was their leader, so they obeyed. Those on the field began thumping their back legs on the ground in a particular cadence, signaling those still in the warren. Within minutes, the entire colony had gathered on the field. They hopped out slowly, fearfully, rather than happily flitting about as they normally would. "'The cloud is forming,' Rhubarb said, looking upward. "'As is our tradition, we must stay here until the sacrifice has been made. For the good of the many, one must be chosen. One must be taken.' The throng began trembling, their eyes shifting back and forth. It is a rabbit's nature to run when a threat approaches. It was taking all their collective courage to stay rooted to the spot. But a threat was approaching. The cotton-like cloud ring had grown, become darker. It began swirling as well, turning counterclockwise, its center still clear and blue. "'We have lived through this before,' Rhubarb said, trying to assuage his congregation. "'Please remain calm. Remember, only one of us will be taken. The rest will return to a normal life.' Rhubarb had been leader for many years. His eyes were dull, his ears graying, and he didn't seem to have the conviction he did in his younger years. "'Why? Why must we remain calm?' a young upstart bunny named Prickle yelled loud enough for all to hear. "'Why must we obey this call?' "'This ritual of death?' he asked, nosing at the rapidly turning cloud above. "'Were we not given claws and teeth to defend ourselves? "'Were we not given powerful hunches to run from danger? "'Why must we stay here?' 
The cloud was roiling now, spinning furiously like a tornado high above. Its center now seemed to be warping, the blue sky flickering, rippling like the air above a fire. It is our way, Prickle, Rhubarb spat. We must think of the colony, not each individual life. This is the same as when a fox calls our warren, or when a man traps one of us. Sometimes we all survive because of the sacrifice of one. That isn't true, Prickle yelled, nudging his way to the front of the crowd. With foxes, with man, we run, we fight, we don't stand still, allowing ourselves to be taken, accepting it. Looking out at the faces of his flock and their growing indecision, Rhubarb spoke. We have been told what happened when one of us wasn't taken in the ritual, the devastation that occurred. We must keep our resolve. As it has been preached to us for generations, one must be taken. It is our way. If we do not obey, if we do not let the sacrifice happen, ruin will be brought down upon us. His voice was suddenly stern and strong. Those are fairy tales that you elders use to make us submit, Prickle screamed over the growing winds. That destruction hasn't happened in a hundred lifetimes, if it ever did happen. Come, my rabbits, follow me. We will leave this field and hide. Let this codified murder no longer happen. The cloud was now spinning even faster, a reverse vortex swirling upwards from its center to the heavens. Its gusts were whipping down onto the field, pinning the rabbits' ears against their frightened faces. For a split second, it seemed that Prickle's speech might shake this foundation of the rabbit's culture, and the crowd would disperse. But then a loud thunderclap boomed from inside the cloud, shaking the very land, freezing every rabbit in their tracks. The ritual had begun. The center of the cloud now looked like a swirling maelstrom of color and energy, and through that maw, a giant human hand reached down from the heavens. The rabbits were paralyzed, trembling with fear. They cringed as the hands swept over their heads, hoping they wouldn't be chosen. Its fingers grazed their ears, seeking some victim, a sacrifice to sate its need. And then, quickly and violently, the hand grasped a rabbit by the scruff of its neck. It was Prickle. "'Remember my words!' he screamed as the hand began to retract back into the vortex. "'We don't need to live like this, in fear!' He was struggling to free himself, but to no avail. "'Tell my story!' The hand and Prickle disappeared into the cyclone. And then, with a loud whoosh, the cloud simply was gone, the clear blue sky once again over the field. "'We are safe again. The sacrifice has happened. Go back to eating,' Rhubarb said flatly. "'It is our way.' "'It is our way,' the rabbits repeated, chewing their clover slowly and sadly." Prickle saw the colony recede from his vision. There was a second of cold, pure blackness, and then he found himself in the light being held aloft in front of a group of young humans, all screaming wildly in their guttural language. He craned his neck to see the human holding him above, the owner of the hand which plucked him away. "'And that is how you pull a rabbit from a hat,' the man said, bowing. The other humans beat their hands together and screamed louder. "'But that's a normal hat,' one of the other humans retorted. "'Where did the bunny come from?' "'Let's just say it came from somewhere else,' the man said. "'It's magic.'" (laughs) 
Welcome to a special Easter episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this time wrote to me when I first announced this podcast last fall. He said there were two stories he was dying to hear because they freaked him out when he first read them. And today, we're covering one of those stories. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, please welcome the longtime friend of the Fire and Water Network, Mr. Martin Gray. How are you, my friend? Hiya, I'm very well, Ryan. It's a beautiful Saturday here in Scotland, and I'm looking forward to Easter next weekend. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for those of you listening, Martin is here to talk about the Easter-themed story Hopping Down the Bunny Trail that first appeared in Tales of the Unexpected 202. We will get into that in a minute, but first, Martin, tell us about your experience with horror comics or the genre in general. Well, with horror comics, my first experience was with a British Marvel reprint comic called Dracula Lives. Mm. And it repeated, repeated, reprinted Tomb of Dracula. And the way I read it was that as about a 10-year-old, I had a school pal, Stephen, and he and I would swap our British Marvel weeklies. And I would have the Avengers Weekly and the Titans, which wasn't anything to do with the Teen Titans. It was a magazine size stapled on its side (laughs) to fit two American-sized pages on one. So you got a hell of a lot of story pages in just 32 pages. (laughs) And so I'd give him Avengers and the Titans, and he would give me Planet of the Apes, which I wasn't too fussed about, and Dracula Lives which it was Dracula in the front and often in the back. It was usually Werewolf by Night, sometimes Frankenstein. Nice. And occasionally it would be billed as the Legion of Monsters. And having been raised on Hammer films, the Marv Wolfman and Gene Conan stories, they really, really caught my imagination. And I'm from a mining town, I can see him in County Durham mm-hmm. in England. And we had three working collieries, three pits in the town. And to get back from Stephen's house, my friends, I had to walk through a coal yard. And in the winter, I'd be wandering back in the dark of the evening and there'd be old dark buildings all around, massive hills of coal, mysterious bits of machinery, strange noises, <laughs> cats around. I know. Every time I wandered back, I was somehow convinced I was being stalked by a vampire. I can and imagine. I way to, way to yeah. set the scene there. <laughs> I just loved it, right? It was, it was really creepy. And then he got home through the door and was like, oh, scary. <laughs> From then on, I just would buy as many horror comics as I could get, and bit by bit, the DC horror comics started appearing in the local shops because for years you'd never see them. Mm-hmm. And then, so you know, I started buying, you know, House of Mystery, Secrets, Unexpected, and uh, I think I've probably told this story before, but uh, I was a pedantic soul, and I once wrote to the Answer Man Bob Lazarkus at DC Comics asking about the cover subtitle of Ghost, which you'll probably remember was True Tales of the Weird and Supernatural, mm-hmm. and because I read the small print. Because I, I wanted value for my comic. <laughs> I, uh, I saw that the line that was in every single comic that said, of course, it said uh, the disclaimer about the stories having nothing to do with anyone living or dead. Dead? And so I wrote to Bob Rosarkas and he acknowledged it. And then, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, but about 76 issues in, within the month of the question appearing, the word true was replaced with the word new, so it was new tales of the week. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was so proud. I, I decided that was me. <laughs> and I don't know, did, did you follow those comics yourself? Not at the time, no. Um, and I mentioned that way back. I mentioned like when I was a when I was a kid, a friend of a friend kind of left um, a shoebox full of old Marvel horror comics uh, at my house for like a week, and that was my first exposure to Tomb of Dracula, Werewolf by Night, and some of those. And I, I just love those, and I've always loved those Marvel horror comics. So for some reason, I just decided to do a DC horror podcast instead. Um, so uh, that makes sense. 
Yeah. So some of the sort like my my familiarity with like House of Mystery and House of Secrets is only only goes back really about ten years. Um, and certainly just within the last year or so, I've been reading a whole lot more and really not rediscovering, just discovering it for the first time. Um, but really loving some of these old horror anthologies. They're so much fun. So, but yeah, I am oh, I'm a I'm a neophyte for this genre. Well, in terms for the DC side of things, at least. Oh, you're not doing badly. I mean, I, the formulaic aspect, I mean, obviously you notice the formula mm-hmm. very quickly. Yeah, oh, sure, yeah. But, but it was rather comforting, you know. But when a story came along and did something different, like there was one, uh, I think I tweeted out the cover of A House of Mystery a few weeks back called Epod by Len Wein and Steve Ditko, which was, it was about, I think it was just about a three-page story. And Len Wein had just written a poem. <laughs> and it was a really a spooky poem that Steve Ditko had done fantastically yeah. Ditko-esque creepy art for. And it was a bit different, and obviously, you know, Swamp Thing, when it came along, sure. the original yeah, Swamp yeah. Thing was different. And then there's this one, which was, whew, <laughs> just, it really has stuck with me down the years. Then let's not, uh, let's not keep our listeners in, in any more suspense. Uh, let's kind of get into the story and why it stuck with you. First of all, this, the story that, again, it's called Hopping Down the Bunny Trail. It first appeared in Unexpected Issue 202, which is cover dated September 1980. But the on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World, was June 26th that year. The issue cost 50 cents and sported a truly memorable cover by Luis Dominguez that shows three little kids collecting painted Easter eggs while a giant bunny rabbit with, like, foot-long, razor-sharp teeth stalks them from behind a tree. What do you think of this cover? <laughs> I just think it's fantastic. I mean, as you say, the, the way the bunnies sort of coming out of the background and sort of just in front of the unexpected logo... And with the one little girl noticing and the two little boys oblivious. Mm-hmm. And there's no way, there's no way this bunny means to do anything <laughs> but harm, you know? Yes. And it's just the, the contrast between, you know, the whiteness of the bunny and the, the orange of the, the well, the, the, the graduated tint orange of the logo. It's just wonderful. I just love it. I remember hearing about this story before I got this issue. And this was actually once I started going in and like collecting the issues of these things because I knew that I was going to be doing this podcast. This was one of the first issues that I picked up. But I had heard about this beforehand. I might have heard about it from you or it might have been somebody else. But I just remember like hearing the concept of this. I was like, so wait, it's just like a giant killer rabbit on the cover. And like I just had images of Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the same one there. When they go to get into the cave and like the rabbit just starts flying out and like cutting their heads off and everything, and I, yeah. I just imagined it was going to be something so silly and stupid. And then I I was flipping through back, long boxes, and I see this back issue, and I'm like, holy god, that is a terrifying image. It is. It is. It's so much scarier. Have you seen a? I think it's Australian a horror film called Night of the Lepus about teenagers. I think on a beach being pursued by a giant rabbit. Not <laughs> scary. This is. This is positively subtle compared to that. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's grisly. Like the claws on this thing and like the, those teeth. I swear, like oh, Louis Dominguez or Luis, I'm not sure which, but he mm-hmm. so knew what he was doing because he produced so many covers for the books, usually ghosts. And yes. this this one, I mean, I think you just about see his LD signature above the barcode. Mm-hmm. But he, I mean, he really was a master of composition and light and darkness, and it was hard to resist any of the covers, any of the books that had his covers on them. No, yeah, absolutely. And this is, and what's great, I mean, he knew how to tell a complete story just with the cover. Because you look at this and it's, oh, it's fantastic. So It really um, is. And what, what's amazing is that apparently, I couldn't find out for definite, but it seems that even despite being born in 1923, he might still be with us, which I love the idea of. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you were, hello, sir. 
Um, okay, there are four short stories in this issue. We are only talking about the second one that appears. Martin, would you care to tell our listeners about Hopping Down the Bunny Trail? I certainly will. The story is by Michael Uslan Writer. Art is by Tenny Henson. The lettering is by the single-named SVD. Coloured by the legendary Tatiana Wood, who did lots of Swamp Thing. Edited by Jack C. Harris. And managing editor, Joe Orlando. Our story is introduced by DC horror host, Abel, with these words. Easter, a time of joy for adults as well as for their chocolate-smeared offspring. But this Easter, science has mysteriously been tacked up around the square, inviting children to the Easter bunnies hunt. So off go the children to the hunt, never knowing that terror might come hopping down the bunny trail. We see a bunch of parents and kids on a beautiful spring day. It's Easter Sunday, in fact. The children are being dropped off at the old Krieger mansion, where an Easter egg hunt is being laid on. One of the dads is a tad wary. There are stories this place is haunted. Another parent, though, notes that all the signs advertising the event went up overnight, a feat of organisation only the town council could achieve. This Easter egg hunt is obviously above board, so the kids are left there alone to be collected later, by which time they'll be stuffed with chocolate treats, worn out and no doubt ready for a good night's sleep. Three siblings, Marvin, Sally and Stanley, talk about how they love to bite off the heads of chocolate bunnies first, even as dark clouds begin to surround the house. The children ahead seem to be getting escorted by a flock of bats... The kids don't notice. Then, a man-sized white rabbit appears. He's wearing a spotted bow tie, but isn't remotely cute. His eyes are dead-looking, his fur just a little bit too scraggy. Still, he welcomes the sprogs in a friendly manner. They don't look entirely convinced, but heck, there are chocolate rabbits to be had. The children assume this is the town's regular Santa Claus, Old Man Snyder, in another seasonal costume. They follow it into the house. The house is dark and dusty and full of cobwebs, really rather scary, but the kids don't think of leaving especially when they see other children and worry that they're going to nab all the goodies. After a while, their baskets are overflowing with candy, and as a storm has broken out, the little girl suggests they pack it in and go home. Without warning, the lights go out, and the children realise they've not seen anyone else for half an hour. And yet Marvin hasn't had enough. He wants more chocolate. The other candy hunters must be through that door over there, the locked door. Suddenly, it swings open, and the kids move forward, and there's no floor. They plop into a massive pot of something sticky, something black, Tar, suggests Sally. No, replies Marvin, licking his fingers. It's chocolate. Marvin seems to have at last lost his appetite. The giant rabbit reappears, looming above them. Welcome to the Easter Bunny's chocolate vat, he says. Why, this must be part of the party, says an excited Stanley. What a great idea. Of course, I love children, says the bunny, as he reaches forward to help the kids out of the vat. The grateful Marvin replies, thanks, I'm dripping, and I'm hungry says the rabbit. For years you kids have been biting into chocolate Easter bunnies. Well, turnabout is fair play. I can't control my thirst for revenge anymore. Hey, come on, Mr. Snyder. You're, you're scaring me. Take off your mask. The great beast's eyes shine with a terrifying intensity as he grabs Marvin, raises him off the ground, and bites into him. In the dark of the cellar, Sally and Stanley can't quite see what's happening, but as a grinning Abel appears to tell us in the final panel, all they can see is the object that dropped from Marvin's pocket, his chocolate Easter bunny with the head bitten off. Suddenly the screaming stops and Stanley and Sally huddle together, knowing that whatever's happening to Marvin, they're next. (laughs) Alright, thank you very, very much. Alright... What do you think about this story? Clearly it meant a lot to you when you were young, so what is it about this? I just, genuinely creepy. I mean, 
yes, I was used to the formula, as I said before, a bad person does something awful to a good person, but gets their just heavily ironic desserts. And mm-hmm. But like that original song, Swamp Thing story, this was different. In this case, it's three little kids who get eaten by a monstrous rabbit. Okay, we don't see them physically gobbled, Ryan, but there's no doubt about their fate. We get close I mean, in that last page. We come close. Yeah, we do. We do. It's pretty, it's pretty much there. I mean, and, and you know, Michael Ozan, the writer, or Abel, you know, take your pick, tell us on page one that after her mother, the mother sends the children to hunt the chocolate eggs, she never sees them again. I mean, there it is in black and white at the start, and I yeah. never believed it. I was, I was expecting some reversal that would prove Abel a liar, because no one's going to do something terrible to little kids in a comic book, so to little kids. I mean, they weren't little horrors. Yeah, no, that was that was like perfect. Just like such a great little creepy setup, a great little creepy bit of like foreshadowing. That yeah, like everything seems so pleasant and nice. They're yeah, they're just going out for like the Easter bunny. This is a normal day, a normal happy day when everybody is good. And then just that boom, the mother never sees her children again. And all of a yeah. sudden, it's like, oh, what's gonna happen? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute. So. I mean, you know, because, uh, yeah, because, of course, you know, they like to bite the heads off the chocolate rabbits, but it's hardly a crime and they were a bit greedy. But they're, they're kids, they're kids. It was that giant looking rabbit, I thought it had to be a fake out, you know? Yes. But, but no, it was the Easter Bunny turned out to be the Eater Bunny. <laughs> And like in on page four, because uh, for those of you listening, like this is a short pa- this stor- short story. It's only five pages, um, and great economy of of story and art and everything. But on page four, when you see the Easter Bunny, it looks kind of like a guy in a big fat bunny suit. Like initially, it's just got kind of like a friendly smile face and this bow tie, and it looks it could conceivably be a guy in a costume. And then it turns once you figure out what his agenda is, and it looks more feral and savage, and it's not smiling. And the kid is like, come on, take off your mask. And like, like his last words are, it's not a mask, it's not a mask, it won't come off. <laughs> it does, it does. It, it's funny, because when, when you first meet the Easter Bunny on page two, the bottom of page two, mm-hmm. and I'm imagining hopefully you'll be able to put all five pages up for people to have a oh, little yeah. look at. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but on the, on the bottom of page two, where there's that uh, split panel, and, you know, the, the, the kids progress across the two panels. In the first panel, you see the back of the bunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't look too bad. Then in the second panel, where they're facing him, you, you've got the dark eyes, and he's just l- looking a little bit sort of, you know, there's something a bit off about him. Yeah. But, yeah, when he, when he, when he does reappear on page four, he, you're right, he, do, he does look like, you know, someone in, in a wibbly-wobbly costume. And he, not too bad, but by the bottom panel of that page, I mean, how does he look to you on the bottom panel? Oh, God, oh, yeah. Hungry. Yeah, it's... Like the junky addict eyes or whatever, like he like yeah, he looks sort of wee weary, and you know he's got mm. he's you know, he's got to do what he's got to do, and he's but you know, whew. yeah, the story, like I said, it's it's great. It's I think Uslan did a great job of just sort of setting it up from the beginning. It's a normal kind of day. There's there's a bit of the a little bit of a hint of wow, this thing kind of came together really quick. I had no idea we were doing this hunt. Well, it must have been sanctioned by the town because the signs mm. are up everywhere. And it's like, uh, maybe like it's one of those things where when you read it the second time, you're like, okay, that's a creepier detail. Yeah, it's far too much faith in the town council there. But the the poster of the bunny hunt is so cute, like Captain Carrot or something like (laughs) that. Yeah, and it's it's one of those weird stories. Again, it's a story that about a monster preying on little children. It you know taps into that you know primordial part of you that just. That that feels like that you know that is a, a a really horrific soft spot, and again these aren't bratty kids these aren't the nasty kids these aren't ne'er do wells. What is their sin? They're eating chocolate bunny rabbits. So a bunny rabbit takes offense to that. 
And he's going to get his It's like turnabout is fair play. It's like they didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> you don't justify this. I know, but you—you you are right. It's, it is primal. Primal is the, the, the kids going into the, the forest, Hansel mm-hmm. and Gretel. Yep. But in this case, they, they don't escape the witch's oven. And like the middle, the third page, basically, where they're in this in this house, just looking for all of these Easter bun, Easter eggs, and they're like, "Yeah, I haven't seen any other kids looking for a while." And you're just gonna ah, oh, this would be a great story. I, I would love to see this adapted mm-hmm. somehow. You couldn't make this a full blown movie, but like as like a a short piece or something like this. Like, yeah, in one of the, one of those portmanteau movies would be yeah. it would be work perfectly, you know, like trick or treat or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just love that page in particular. In you know, the way you know the way Tenny Henson, the artist, uses the silhouettes halfway yes. down the page and has them breaking the panels before they fall down the hole. Mm-hmm. I actually I hadn't heard his name before, so I looked him up, and it sounds like he had pretty he had a pretty lengthy career, but I think he did a lot of inking work more than he did penciling. But he certainly he worked a lot on these like horror comics and like weird war tales, weird western. This was sort of his genre. But then I think after that he kind of went on to do a lot of like animation work in the eighties for like He Man and and X Men cartoons. Dunes, in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah I, I, I love his I love his the lightness of his line because it reminds me. Of, I don't know whether you've seen the uh, the romance work of Liz Burub, who was usually a colorist on DC comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a lot of her work on a. Uh, Jackie Jackie Nadell's yep. sequential crush uh, blog, mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it reminded me very you know very much of romance work, which is why I'm surprised to see looking looking him up that he doesn't seem to have done any romance work for DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but certainly he does great kids, really yeah. really good kids. Oh yeah, yeah, I really like it. And actually, just on the first page, the two guys, like the two dads who are talking to each other, that seems like one of those things where the two guys on the second panel there might have been DC staffers. It might be him drawing. Uslan and himself, or something like that. But if not, that, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, there's certainly, there's certainly a, a nice naturalistic realism to them. Right, right. Especially like with the cigarette and the hat on the bearded guy and everything. But uh, oh, very cool. Yeah, because because what because even Abel Abel was based on a DC staffer, wasn't he? Mark Havlin, I think it was something like that. Yeah, I was trying to think of the name. I think you're right. I think Havlin. <laughs> this was a story. Like every time I think about this, I I can't help myself. It, the story is called Hopping Down the Bunny Trail. I always have like this gut instinct to call it hopping down the bunny hill, and then the phrase bunny hill makes me think of Benny Hill. So, <laughs> oh, that would be so, speed up the story. No, I, th- I think of the story and I just hear that. Oh, yeah, the bunny spraying after the kids and the kids trying to get the Easter eggs. <laughs> the kids running behind a rock. Having- Trying to grab a woman, but, but yeah. But I mean, what, what's especially nightmarish about this to me is, anyways, I, I'm the kind of person who carries around one of those little bottles of cleansing gel in my pocket because I hate being sticky. Mm-hmm. And just, I mean, never mind the bunny that'll bite your head of just being dropped into a vat of chocolate. Oh, Ooh, yeah. good lord! Yeah, actually, like it, this story could have ended with the kids just being encased or like killed by dropping into like boiling chocolate, something like that. They could have just been encased in chocolate bars and eventually kind of. Yeah cannibalized or cut up or something like that. There's a whole lot of avenues you could have done for the horror aspect of the story. But it, it turns out, no, it's just like this giant killer rabbit biting their heads off. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I know, and it, but it is so scary. I mean, like, like you say, the, the, way, the way over the course of a couple of pages, the rabbit gradually goes from, you know, being could, cuddle, cuddly bunny, possibly a man in a costume, to sort of this... this terrifying monster with its black ears right up in the air and its red eyes and then by the time you get to the you know the, the third from final panel with the rabbit sort of with his eyes just glaring and these lights out of the eyes it, it's just absolutely nightmarish mm-hmm. 
I again, having read like a ton of these stories, like especially in like House of Mystery and House of Secrets and everything, I was impressed with how dark the story went. Um, with some of the subject matter, it didn't have a light kind of comical O. Henry type of twist at the end. And also, I mean, later in this issue, like the last story is called "The Creature in the Park." That's a really dark story. Like, forgetting the supernatural horror aspect of that story, like, there's a part of, like, one of the guys you're following is, like, basically trying to rape a woman for, like, part of the story and everything. It's like, I was like reading, I was like, the whole comic, I was kind of, this is a darker issue than I was expecting. I know, I wonder whether they, whether they knew that, because the, they, whether they knew the series was ending soon, because I think, I think it was gone within a year or something like that. So yeah. Maybe they were just really going for it. Maybe Jack C. Harris was thinking, you know, push it that little bit further. Maybe, yeah. Just such, oh, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful little story. But I really do miss these books. Me too. Um, it's actually, I, I have a little bit of a plan for upcoming episodes of Fire and Water Presents or FW Presents, where I might do kind of like a, a recurring segment called, you know, when I'm in charge or if I was running DC or something like that, uh, and just kind of do little like flight of fancy episodes, like what I would do with certain characters or things like that. Just kind of indulgence, maybe like five minute episodes. Um, but one of them was uh, kind of like thinking like I I know there's a stigma against anthology books and this type of thing that they just don't sell well. But I think it would be cool and I think it would be un- a worth it enough in their interest as maybe a yearly annual or a yearly special or maybe every two years or something. If DC just published you know an 80 page giant or a hundred page giant or something like that, that's just like a, a sort of revival of this type of horror anthology. And they could get some of their big-name talent. There could be a framing device with the Phantom Stranger or Madame Xanadu or something like that. And some of it could be, you know, playing with their horror characters like Dead Man or the Demon. Some of it could just be give their give their, chan- their, their authors and their artists the chance to do unconventional, like, scary stories. Um, and especially, they, they can be short ones. So you could have, like, eight or nine different short stories in this special issue. And just something like that, to do that once a year, once every two years or something like that. Just kind of keep this type of story in the consciousness, in the mainstream comics. And they and then you could do it for the horror ones. They could do it for the war comics. They could do it for the westerns. Um, I, I think that would be a really cool idea. I'd buy that for $7. I mean, have you seen any of the, the, the ones D, DC Vertigo has done a few in the last few years? They did a few giant issues. I think they did a Strange Adventures, and I think they might have used the House of Mystery, House of Secrets titles, but they, they haven't worked for me. They've been, it's been done by people who, I don't know, Vertigo-type creators who just don't seem to really love the form. They seem to think, it, to me, it seems like they think the work they're above, mm-hmm. they're above just doing you know a nice, tight, little shock ending thing and just trying way too hard to do something significant. Oh. And it just doesn't have the quick punch, the quick get in, get out, tell your story. Right. No, I, I would. I would love to see you know what you describe something a little more traditional, and that, that doesn't shy away from the horror horse and DC's mystery characters. I mean, I wonder how many writers and artists today, or particular like writers and mm. comics, how many of them could do a real short story. When you think how much of the mainstream, especially with superhero comics, has been geared, it was for about ten years. It was geared for the writing for the trade. All of these six issue story arcs. I know they've scaled back on that a lot lately, but it's still. I mean, can, do these guys know how to write an eight-page story, a six-page story? I don't know, and it's a shame because, oh, you know, well, as, as you know, these, in the heyday of the mystery books, they were the training grounds, weren't mm-hmm. they? People like Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, yeah. J.M. GM, GM Matisse did yeah. some fantastic this, work. This is where they cut their teeth. This is how they showed them, how they proved themselves. 
I just, I wish, I just wish there was somewhere, even if they maybe try, you know, maybe occasional, just a weekly digital series with, you know, writers and artists doing mm-hmm. eight pages a week of, of something over there, just to, and then, you know, just gather them in a comic and try it out. Yeah, yeah. And the challenge would be, you know, come up with something as good as this. <laughs> well, any final thoughts on this Benny Hill story? Not Benny Hill, Bunny, <laughs> Bunny Trail story. <laughs> <laughs> no, just that I hope that. In some way, there was a page that we never saw in which somehow someone came along and saved these kids, <laughs> apart, from, apart from Marvin, because Marvin's head was gone. I think it's too late for him. <laughs> Actually, yeah, then the other kids would be traumatised for life, so perhaps better that they're dipped in chocolate and then down, down the bunny's throat. So, nope, just a, a perfect little short story. I love when we get some sort of crossover the seasons, because it feels like Halloween is our designated season our designated holiday for horror type of stories but every once in a while i love it when there's a crossover like a scary easter story a scary christmas story those are a lot of fun to play with oh gosh yes indeed let's start thinking about scary christmas stories now there's there's one i know i'm going to be covering at the end of this year because uh it's in an issue that i've already covered i don't remember might have been in the same mm. yeah well, I, I think that, that, that's our sort of little challenge to try and guess what you're going to cover without you telling us. I, I don't know how long it'll take, but yeah, go for it. <laughs> you, you intrigue me, sir. All right. Well, Martin, thank you very much for being on this episode of Midnight, the podcasting hour. Where else can people find you if they want to hear more from you or your thoughts on comic books and stuff like that? Generally, I do a little modest comic blog, just reviewing comics weekly, do about two or three a week called too dangerous for a girl i'm usually sort of coming out with some nonsense on twitter at march gray m-a-r-t-g-r-a-y and you know often in the fire and water podcast network's comment section but i pop up here and there (laughs) yes you do we always appreciate it so oh you're sweet thank you Uh, you're a great fan you're a great friend of the network and especially if you keep sending chris and i you know those comics then we'll always (laughs) well you'll always have a place in our in our hearts (laughs) well i I have one british batman annual left but who do i send it to that's the question Hmm. it's it's got a fantastic it's got that walt simonson joker cover on the front so we should see you never know mate keep an eye you never know Well, one more time, thank you very much, and uh, you will definitely be appearing on the show again because we've got another story uh, that we've got to cover, and a Bernie Wrightson story to boot, uh, so I'll look forward to covering that one in the future. Thank you. We even worked the title of that comic into this summary <laughs> of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, let's see. What, what can we do? Yeah, just plop or something. <laughs> Indeed. Roll on. I look forward to that. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick promotional break, and after that, I'll have your listener feedback from the Crimson Claw story a couple episodes ago. Don't go away. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord! Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. 
This is an occasional cast to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Hello, this is Al Sedano for Resurrections, an Adam Warlock and Thanos podcast. Our two-month hiatus will be over soon, and new episodes will return on November 6th. Brian Zeno and Chris Matthews will be here as we cover the final chapters of Thanos' War for the Cosmic Cube. If you miss John M. Wilson, don't worry. He'll be here next year as we get to Adam Warlock's death and rebirth in the pages of The Incredible Hulk, as well as the very subtle sorry, allegories contained in those pages. So use iTunes or your favorite podcatcher to search for Adam Warlock or Thanos and listen along every two weeks. You can also follow us at our home at resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com. Okay, the following listener feedback is from episode 8, in which Scott X and I covered the story The Crimson Claw. It was a great episode. I am really proud of it. Everybody heaped tons and tons of well-deserved praise on Scott. And Scott replied to much of these comments on the website, so I will let his words speak for themselves and kind of just breeze through the rest. The first comment came from Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom and my co-host on the Night Force episodes, which should be back soon, hopefully. Paul said, I was really impressed by Scott's debut, and I'd be first in line to check out his Assassin cast. Yeah, uh, Scott did a great job on the episode, like I said, and I basically just turned him loose and let him do everything himself. And also, Assassin cast is a great name for a show. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water Network said, It's a shame that comics really can't do stories like this much anymore. There just aren't venues for four or five pagers. Ryan is right. This story exists pretty much just to get to the aha moment at the end. So if you force the reader to wade through 10 or 12 pages, it would get tedious. But four pages is just the right amount. A few other people mentioned this as well, and I, of course, agree, because it was my opinion. Uh, Rob goes on, My great-uncle Fred, born in 1900, once showed us a newspaper he had. It was from the time of Lincoln's assassination. A sub-headline revealed that when it was printed, Booth had not even been caught yet. We were gobsmacked that this piece of American history was just sitting in an envelope, buried among all of his other bric-a-brac. We implored him to donate the paper to a museum, but our uncle Fred said he'd rather just give it to us when he died. Unfortunately, in the subsequent years, he allowed an antiques dealer into his home, whom we believe ended up stealing some items. The newspaper was never seen again. That sucks. That really, really sucks, Rob. I am sorry. The only consolation I can give is that in the spirit of a good ghost story, I am sure that antiques dealer met a grim and gory death for his actions. Uh, Chris Franklin from the network said, I've always been fascinated by both Lincoln and his assassination, so hearing Scott discuss it was a real treat. I think I got this mini-obsession from my dad. I don't read a lot of non-comic-related nonfiction because I'm an awful person, but a few years back I read Manhunt, The 12-Day Chase for Lincoln's Killer by James L. Swanson, and I could not put that book down. I highly recommend it to anyone who enjoyed this discussion today. 
Uh, then Chris mentioned that the art team of George Tusca and Nick Hardy were working together at the time the story came out on the Teen Titans, as that series' original run was winding down. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog and the author of the story It Is Our Way at the beginning of this episode said, I read the story before listening to the podcast and thought it was decent, but on hearing the truth behind this, I was floored. Wow. I hope the real bits of that story were discussed in the letter column. That would be interesting. I, I wonder if they were. That'd be cool. Martin Gray, who you heard on this episode, said, What a terrific episode. Great job all around. The level of knowledge brought by Scott made this extra special, and I'm dying to hear more from Ryan on the history of Halloween in the United States. I had to pass through Jersey City a few years ago, and I could not believe the amount of dangling dummies, wizened witches, and pumpkins in patches. Uh, about ten years ago, I wrote a dramatic version of the origin of the jack-o'-lantern for a group of sixth graders, and I cannot find that story anymore. It's not on my computer, and I don't have a hard copy. I think I can probably recreate a lot of it from memory or with a moderate amount of research. I'll probably have to do that, and maybe for this year's Halloween episode, which will also be the one-year anniversary of the podcast. Anyway, Martin continues, I really enjoyed the craft of this tight tale, but I wish there'd been a note at the end providing elucidation, because until I heard Scott, I'd assumed that this was simply Dorfman being entertainingly wacky. The story behind the story was utterly fascinating, and I reckon Ryan hit the nail on the head that the gypsies' I'm building my part ramblings influenced the teenage mind of Booth and set him on the road to a tragic end. Not that I'm saying a Brit was to blame, obviously. Well, of course not. Who would ever think that? Uh, then Martin talked a bit about Tusca's art and some of the word balloons. I'm amazed, Martin said. Tusca looks to have drawn the first panel on the final page back to front, meaning that Johnny's friend's dialogue comes after Johnny's words as Western eyes are trained to read. It's a wonder someone in the production department didn't just flip the panel. Siskoid from the network said, Damn it, Ryan, you made me laugh out loud in the opener, in the street in front of everyone. Well, that wouldn't happen, Siskoid, if you listen to the show at midnight the way you're supposed to. Love the episode and the real historical weirdness. Lincoln is a great one for that, especially the weird links between his death and JFK's. Personally, I think Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter is the true secret history of the famous president. Oh yeah, true stories. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, John F. Kennedy Vampire Lover. Uh, got a comment from Darren and Ruth Sutherland from the RAD Network of Podcasts. Whew, I am glad you didn't cover the story about the mutant pumpkin. That sounded much too scary. Uh, yeah, no need for me to tell the story. You can just follow cable news to hear all about it. Oh, and now the mutant pumpkin has access to intercontinental ballistic missiles. So, you know, even scarier. Uh, Brian Linton said, A truly fascinating episode, and congratulations to Scott on his podcast debut. As a Civil War buff back in my middle school days, I really appreciated the historical context for the story. I had heard of Booth's encounter with the fortune teller before, but had never heard of his mother's premonitions. Great stuff, and an example of truth sometimes being stranger than fiction. Again, see cable news for examples of that. Uh, that is it for the website feedback from the Crimson Claw episode. I don't remember the last time I read the iTunes reviews, but there are two relatively new ones from February that I don't think I've read on an episode, so here we go. Uh, the first review comes from Simpson. Five stars. It sends chills down my spine. Simpson writes, I'm enjoying this new podcast. It seems to cover new ground by talking about comics with a horror theme and doing a good job exploring that subject matter. 
Thank you for that. Uh, and the latest review is from Jbone One, who might be Jared Albrick, the yard sale artist. He says, 9.30 p.m. at the latest would be better. I just have a hard time staying up until midnight, but this show makes it totally worth it. The horror comics are ones I love, but still have something of a blind spot with. This show fills in some missing pieces in such a fun way. Hey, this podcast is for night owls and insomniacs only. Uh, but thank you anyway. Seriously, thank you all for the iTunes reviews. Thank you for the website comments. Thanks to everyone who promotes this show on Facebook and Twitter. I appreciate all of your support. Next time, if the schedules permit, Paul Hicks and I should be back to Night Force or Ben Avery on Swamp Thing. We will see how it goes, what I have time for, and how I can get things scheduled. Okay, well, clearly now I'm just rambling because we're out of time. Happy Easter, everybody. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight the Podcasting Hour is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.